After a one-week hiatus, we are back in the book of Judges this morning. So if you're able, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to Judges chapter 15. Judges chapter 15, we've been looking at the life of Samson. We saw his remarkable birth. We saw in stark contrast his deplorable character. But today we're going to see how he begins to deliver Israel. We're actually going to see something good from Samson today, I promise. The context, as we come to chapter 15, if you'll remember from two weeks ago, is that Samson had married a Philistine wife, but he had a dispute at the wedding over his riddle, and this led to the slaughter of 30 Philistines. In response to this, uh, the wife of uh, Sam, excuse me, the father of Samson's wife gave her to another man. And this started the conflict between Israel and the Philistines that the Lord, as we know from all along, has been trying to stir up. And this conflict that has just begun is now about to burst into a roaring flame. So that's the context. Right after Samson's marriage, Judges chapter 15 that we come to here. And so let's pick up the story here in verse 1. We're going to be reading the entire chapter. Judges chapter 15. Brethren, this is God's Word. Let us listen to what God has for us today. After some days, at the time of the wheat harvest, Samson went to visit his wife with a young goat. And he said, I will go into my wife in the chamber, but her father would not allow him to go in. Her father said, I really thought that you utterly hated her. So I gave her to your companion. Is not her younger sister more beautiful than she? Please take her instead. And Samson said to them, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. So Samson went and caught three hundred foxes and took torches. And he turned them tail to tail and put a torch between each pair of tails. And when he had set fire to the torches, he let the foxes go into the standing grain of the Philistines and set fire to the stacked grain and to the standing grain, as well as to the olive orchards. Then the Philistines said, Who who has done this? And they said, Samson, the son-in-law of the Timnite, because he has taken his wife and given her to his companion. And the Philistines came up and burned her and her father with fire. And Samson said to them, If this is what you do, I swear I will be avenged on you, and after that I will quit." And he struck them hip and thigh with a great blow, and he went down and stayed in the cleft of the rock at Edom. Then the Philistines came up and encamped in Judah and made a raid on Lehi. And the men of Judah said, Why have you come up against us? They said, We have come up to bind Samson to do him as he did to us. Then three thousand men of Judah went down to the cleft of the rock of Edom and said to Samson, Do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? What then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, As they did to me, so I have done to them. And they said to him, We have come down to bind you, that we may give you to the hands of the Philistines. And Samson said to them, Swear to me that you will not attack me yourselves. They said to him, No, we will only bind you and give you into their hands. We will surely not kill you. So they bound him with two new ropes and brought him up from the rock. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. 
Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax as that has caught in fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramath-Lehi. And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore the name of it was called En-Hekor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. Amen. Bow with me as we go before the Lord again in prayer. Oh, blessed Father, we pray that you would help us now to know you, that you would grant your Holy Spirit to us, that you would inhabit your word this hour, that you would inhabit your people in this place. We pray that you would do this so that we would know you, so that we would know your word, so that we might live in the light of your truth. We ask in the name of Christ Jesus. Amen. One of the most famous sayings of the great reformer Martin Luther, a saying that many say, or many argue, that is the essence of the Reformation, is the saying, Simul justus et peccador. Have you ever heard that before? You know what it means? It's Latin, of course, so I'm sure a few of our homeschoolers probably were able to figure it out. But what it means is simultaneously just and righteous. Simultaneously righteous and sinner. Excuse me, I I messed that up. You got that? I got it the second time. Simultaneously justus, just, righteous, and at the same time, sinner. What this saying is getting at, what Luther was getting at, was the fact that in the gospel we are declared as just and righteous before God on the basis of faith because Christ died in our place. And yet at the same time, in this life, we still struggle with sin. We're all still sinners as we await the age to come. We are at the same time Righteous and sinner. We are at the same time in this life, sinner and saint. And I bring this up because it's key to understanding this polarizing figure of Samson. As we look at his life, there's undoubtedly not much worth admiring in his life or in his character. Most of what we read is despicable. What have we seen so far? He's, He's full of uncontrolled passion and lust, and anger. He's manipulative. He's revengeful. He's egotistical. And yet, at the same time, he is a deliverer that God raised up to save his people. At the same time, in the book of Hebrews, what do we read? He is put forth as an example to us of what it means to live by faith. How can this be? 
Well, brethren, this is a stark example of a great sinner who was also a great saint. And it's important that we read the Samson story this way. This will keep us from, on one hand, making him a hero, right? Kind of whitewashing all of his actions. Or, on the other hand, of entirely dismissing him whatsoever and saying he has nothing to teach us about how to live the Christian life. No, this helps us keep this balance. As I've argued before, uh, through our series through Samson, Samson is an enigma. He is a paradox. He is a walking contradiction. He's physically strong but morally weak. He dominates men but is himself dominated by women. He is a deliverer of God's people and yet he also leads them into further bondage. The greater reality of this is that Samson's life is a walking contradiction because Israel is a walking contradiction. They were to be set apart to the Lord, and yet they continually gave themselves to false gods and idols. And in this respect, Samson is an enigma, a walking contradiction, because, truth be known, every one of us also, in some respect, is a walking contradiction. Every one of us is simultaneously just and yet sinner. And of course, ultimately, Samson is a paradox, an enigma, a walking contradiction, because he not just not only shows us the sinfulness of Adam, but he also foreshadows and points us to the ultimate judge, Jesus Christ. So I want you to keep that in mind as we break down this story today. I want you to keep this tension in mind. Sinner and saint, Adam and Israel, judge and Jesus. This is what helps us make sense of this story. And this is what helps us not only identify with Samson, as we are the same way, but it also helps us rightly see where he both points us to our sin and points us to our Savior. Because that's how we must approach this text. So there's four scenes in this narrative today. And um, so I've got four points to you. That's, that's pretty easy, right? Four points, four scenes. The first one is this. Fighting fire with fire brings annihilation. That's the first thing we're going to see today. Fighting fire with fire brings total annihilation. This is our first point because fire really is a pronounced motif or theme throughout this chapter. In fact, it's throughout the Samson story as a whole. Samson's name means uh, sun child, not in the hippie sense, but sun child, uh, little sun, basically. And we see this little sun burning all throughout. And, And the first thing that we might say here is that this scene opens with Samson burning with lust. Again, if you'll recall in the previous chapter, he burned with lust because he wanted an unlawful Philistine wife. She is right in my own eyes, he said. Then when she turned against him, as I recounted a minute ago, he left her like an abandoned piece of property. This was so shocking that Samson's, uh, excuse me, her father gave Samson's wife to another man. 
But this chapter opens with him burning with lust. In the sense that it looks like on the surface here that Samson cools down after the conflict and he wants to go back to her as if nothing else happened. Here in verse 1, he brings her a young goat in this sense. You know, this is kind of like bringing flowers in a box of chocolates, right? You know you've messed up and now you're going to come bring gifts and try to make things right. This may be what it looks like on the surface, but what is it here that Samson really wants? We read here in verse 1, he doesn't want essentially to be reconciled with her or to her family. What he wants is, I will go in to my wife in the chamber. He wants to make up in the bedroom. Not exactly a man full of charm, is he? He's burning with lust, and this is a sexual motivation here. He's not, this isn't a motivation out of desire or devotion or regret or repentance. And this fits in with what we've seen from him already so far. He's a man burning with passion and with lust. This is the picture we get of him right away again in verse 1. Now, I want to take a step back from the narrative for a moment and just... Think about what he's doing here. Think about how we can apply this to our lives. What we might say here is that this is an example of a man who wants the benefits of marriage without the corresponding commitment. And this is a great sin. Samson has deeply insulted his wife. He called her a heifer, right, in the previous chapter. He's treated her family and her city with contempt. And now he thinks he's just going to waltz right back to her and right, go right into the bedroom. And, and this is, I couldn't help but thinking how this is really the epitome of the, the dating carousel. The sex-obsessed, pornography-filled culture in which we live in. All forms of sexual immorality inside marriage and outside marriage find their root in selfishness rather than in self-giving. Sexual pleasure outside of marriage is the desire for the benefits of marriage without the corresponding commitment of marriage. It's using someone to get what we want. In fact, even when the physical aspect isn't even in play, we can still use people to get the emotional security or the, secu- or the attention of marriage without the obligations. The use of pornography here is a perfect example of this. It is an attempt to experience the pleasures reserved for the marriage alone without even having to talk to the person or even meet the person on the screen, much less comfort them in sorrow, serve them in sickness, support them in suffering. Samson has not been a good husband. He hasn't been a husband at all. And yet he, he burns with desires and lust for what he wants. It's no wonder then that in the New Testament, sexual sin is likened to idolatry. Why? Because the marital union is a picture of our covenantal union with God. 
in creation and in redemption. Samson then shows us Israel. They wanted the benefits of being in union with Yahweh. They wanted His blessing. They wanted His protection. They wanted His help to get what they wanted. But the Lord had said, if you're going to dwell in the land, excuse me, if you're going to dwell in my land, if I'm going to dwell with you, you must be holy. You must be set apart. You must be devoted to me alone. But just like Samson, Israel had thrown off their obligations and they burned with lust for the benefits of the union and not the corresponding commitment. And they ended up seeking those things from foreign gods, foreign lovers, spiritual adultery. Now, I stopped here for a moment just to emphasize this because it's good for us to pause to consider that this is a picture of us. The fullness of emotional and physical love can only be found in the giving up of ourselves, in the sacrificial union of marriage. Not in the seeking of our rights and demanding our personal preferences and pleasures. And in the same way, in Ephesians 5, where where the marriage is given as a picture of Christ in the church, uh, in contrast to Israel, we do have cleansing, we do have entrance into the presence of God on the basis of Christ, not because of our obedience. But in the same way, God still calls us to be devoted to Him alone. Trying to use God for His benefits. Trying to manipulate God. I'm going to give you a a young goat. I'm I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give a little bit of my money. I'm going to walk these steps so that you might bless me. That puts our soul in great danger. I want you to see Samson's sin so that you can, can be warned, so that we can all be warned lest we fall into the same sort of condemnation, either in relation to sexual immorality, or even in relation to our covenantal union with our God. Nevertheless, as we turn back to the narrative, instead of seeing how he had mistreated his wife, his burning lust now turns into burning anger. In verse 2, her father sees Samson and says, Whoa, because of the way uh, you treated her, I, I thought you hated her, so I gave her away. You know, apparently he, he either knew that Samson was a man to be feared, right? So he's trying to appease him. Or he knows what Samson really wants. So he's giving, her the, giving him the younger one, the prettier one, right? But the problem is it's too late because the fuse has been lit and Samson explodes. He says in verse 3, with his burning anger, This time I shall be innocent in regard to the Philistines when I do them harm. In other words, he he knew his actions in the previous chapter were wrong. That's why he says this. But now he thinks he's in the clear. And once again, he's doing what is right in his own eyes. Once again, he's decided that he's going to be the judge, jury, and executioner. So what does he do? He goes out and catches 300 foxes. This is obviously a quite unbelievable feat. Um, It's not... PETA-endorsed warfare either. (laughs) 
Foxes have bushy tails, kind of like a flame. So much so that the the Hebrew word for fox uh, has a cognate that means torch. In Greek, foxes were called torch tails. Then Samson actually does tie a literal torch uh, between the foxes and he lets them go. So here you see the fire motif, right? So in all of this frenzy, the stored grain, the grain fields, the olive groves are destroyed. This is utterly devastating. This is the entire agricultural production of that region that's gone up in flames. This was a huge act of war. Not to mention, it's a little bit of an overreaction by a hot-headed Samson, don't you think? So what's the Philistine response? Well, when they find out that Samson did this, they go and they burn his wife and her father with fire. They fought fire with fire. There's fire all around. Everything's blowing up. Everything's consuming. And then when Samson finds out, he strikes them with a great blow. In verse 8, it says he struck them hip and thigh. That's a a term that means basically he early dominated them. Probably killed a bunch of them. And then he goes and he retreats to this cleft in the rock. As if everything's just going to die down now. Oh yeah, I've destroyed all their agriculture. I've killed a bunch of them. Oh, no, we're probably good now. I'm just going to go retire. The grand point in this is that Samson burns with lust. He burns with anger. He's fighting out of revenge and anger. And God's deliverer has gone rogue. He's off the handle now, off the hinges. None of his actions are out of loyalty to God or loyalty to God's people. And fighting fire with fire is only going to lead to destruction on both sides, which if you know the end of the story of Samson, that's exactly what happens. Everybody's destroyed. Brethren, this is not the character or behavior of a faithful deliverer. And yet, conflict with the Philistines has been stirred up, which is exactly what God wanted. That's the paradox here. God's using him for good. Well, that leads us to the second scene found in verses 9-13. through Here we see that sin turns our deliverance into the enemy. Sin turns our deliverance into the enemy. Samson then goes on vacation, as it were, in the cleft of the rock. You know, this is like the movie with uh, the hero, you know, seen kind of like calmly walking away. He's got a Coke and a smile while the whole world blows up behind him, right? And this is what's going on. The world is aflame and Samson's just hanging out at the cleft of the rock. He thinks the war is over, but the war's not over. It's only just begun because now the Philistines come after him. In verse 9 and 10, the Philistines raid Judah. They demand Samson. They say in verse 10, they want to do to him exactly as he has done to us. And you see that infinite loop again, right? Fire with fire. It's not going to stop until everybody is dead. So the tribe of Judah sends 3,000 men to go and get him. <laughs> 3,000 for one man, right? They know how dangerous he is. And even still, they have to negotiate him with him. They can't even, 
They can't even forcefully grab him. But notice how Samson responds. I ask him why he's done all this, and he says in verse 11, As they did to me, I have done to them. Once again, we see Samson's motivations in this. He's not fighting for Israel or for the Lord. He's fighting out of what he thinks justice is. Right? And yet God is still using him to enact justice on the Philistines, even with his twisted sense of justice. But in the end of the matter here is that Judah negotiates with Samson. He agrees to let them tie him up and hand him over to the enemy. Basically, they're saying, oh, don't worry, we're not going to kill you. We won't harm you, but we're going to you know, just hand you over to the enemy so they can torture and kill you themselves. But what's sad about this is that Judah doesn't care about justice, do they? They just want what's most expedient. And they're willing to give up God's deliverer to make that happen. They just want out of their predicament. They just, you know, Philistines ruled over them and they want to get the Philistines not angry at them, off their back. Think about what this says about Samson as a judge and think about what it says about the nation, this whole episode. Compared to the other judges in this book, Samson is by far the most gifted the most powerful, and yet all of the other judges rallied Israel to overthrow their enemies, but, but not Samson. He retreats to the, to the cleft in the rock. Every time he acts, he fights entirely alone. No doubt that if his gifts were used alongside the nation, Israel uh, would overthrow their enemies, it shows us he's a horrible leader. He's a horrible judge. Because faithful leadership has so much more to do with character than it does with giftedness. He can't get the people to even get on his side. But more than this, what does this tell us about the nation? They complain in verse 11 and they say, Samson... And you know the Philistines rule over us? What are you doing? As we saw last week, it's clear that they've clearly accepted their bondage. They're complacent now in their sin and in their slavery as being ruled by the Philistines. Think about it. Here they see their deliverer as a threat. Here they see their deliverance as fighting against them. Brethren, the lesson for us here is that something is deeply wrong with us when we no longer despise our true enemies. Something is deeply wrong with us when we're so comfortable in sin and bondage that we actually prefer it. But that's what sin and idolatry does. That's what sin and idolatry does in your life as well. Sin convinces us that it's actually good for us, given the circumstances. That we need it. That we can't live without it. That it's right. That it makes sense. That it's a valid excuse. That's what sin does to us. 
Sin leads us to see our deliverers as our enemies. Sometimes we turn against those who love us the most because they stand in the way of getting what we really want. We turn our friends into enemies. That's what sin causes us to do. Sin causes us to focus so much on our present circumstances and needs here and now that we don't often see, or we don't see that often, what looks bad to us is actually what God is using for our good. We don't see that the difficult path is the path of life rather than the easy path, the broad and easy way that leads to destruction. This is another paradox. Sin turns everything on its head. The people of Israel here are convinced that Samson is their enemy and that he is only going to cause them more pain. It's like Eve in the garden thinking, oh my goodness, God forbid me to eat this fruit, but it's so good. If he really loved me, he'd want me to have it. It's the same lie again and again. Sin has so blinded Israel that she's convinced that her deliverer and her deliverance is actually her enemy and for her harm. Let us see a picture of what sin does to us. And yet, even when God's people walk, excuse me, fall into sin and deception, the beauty of the gospel is that God refuses to walk away. He refuses to walk away, such as His mercy and His long-suffering. And that's what leads us to our third scene today. <clears throat> in verses 14-7, through 7, we see that God will raise the dead in order to deliver His people. God will raise the dead if that's what it takes to deliver His people. Judah ties Samson up. And as they're delivering him, the Philistines come shouting to meet him. And just like when the lion came roaring out at him, a spear of the Lord suddenly rushes upon him. His rope, the ropes that bound him, uh, melt away like wax to a flame. There's a fire motif again, the little sun, Samson burning the ropes. And, and he picks up this unconventional weapon, tears his enemy apart. This unconventional weapon is described as a fresh jawbone of a donkey. Fresh uh, probably emphasizes that the teeth were still intact, which would make it a pretty formidable weapon. You know, it's probably about that big. It's, you know, um, this is like the Incredible Hulk swinging Thor's hammer, right? I mean, I'm trying to contextualize here, people. So that's essentially what it is. Once again, of course, he touches a dead animal, which was a violation of his Nazareth vow, but at the same time, undoubtedly, this was you know, provided by God for the victory. <clears throat> and it causes great destruction. What's interesting about this is that this is now the fourth time that Samson has reached into the animal kingdom and used them for victory. You have the lion and the bees and the foxes and now the jawbone of a donkey. I think on one hand, this illustrates his dominion over the animal kingdom. A picture of Adam, we might say. 
a greater Adam here. But on the other hand, it's also a picture of Adam gone wrong because he's using animals in warfare, not for peace. But the point I want you to see is that here, even in death, the animals serve this greater Adam. A dead donkey is reclaimed from the grave in order to serve God's greater purposes. And this becomes a long line of unconventional weapons in the book of Judges. Ehud's small dagger, Shamgar's ox goad, Yale's tent peg, Gideon's torches and clay pots, and so on from there. It shows us how God will use anything to deliver His people, even that which is worthless and weak and dead in the eyes of the world. Useless in the eyes of the world. In fact, it also shows us not only will God use anything, but God intentionally uses what is worthless and weak in the eyes of the world in order to shame His enemies. The end of this account shows us that all of this was meant to be humorous. The 300 foxes, uh, that's supposed to be funny. It's, it's intentionally written with humor. The reader, the Israelites, to find humor in how utterly ridiculous this is. The jawbone uh, of a donkey killing a thousand men. It's supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be ridiculous. It's supposed to show us how ridiculous the enemies of God are when they oppose Him. But this comes out more emphatically when Samson ends this account demonstrating his mastery of the pun once again. In verse 17, when he's finished, he says, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I have struck down a thousand men. It's a pun in Hebrew, and unfortunately it doesn't come out in the English when we translate it. One commentator has given it um, an attempt and he's paraphrased it this way. I'm going to just go with what he says here. I think he kind of grabs it. He says, with the jawbone of an ass, I have piled them in mass. That's kind of what's going on here. If only they had social media in that day, right? He's, he's, he turns it into a pun, and he's making a mockery of the enemies. He's adding insult to injury even when he throws the jawbone away and names the hill, which is the name of that place until this day, which was much later when this was written. It's still named Jawbone Hill. So what do we see? God uses a donkey in the book of Numbers to speak, right, and deliver his people. And here he uses a donkey, even a dead one. To rise up and save his people. That's a paradox. What's weak in the eyes of the world is mighty in the hands of God's deliverer. And the Lord delights not only in using what's foolish in the eyes of the world, but he also delights in using what is foolish in order to shame the world and confound the wisdom of the world. That's the gospel. We'll consider that more in closing in just a moment. But here we reach the fourth and final point here in the narrative, verses 17 through 20. And what I want you to see here is that God will do anything it takes to show us our need for Him. God will do anything it takes to show us our need for Him. After the great slaughter, Samson is thirsty. He's so thirsty that he's on the verge of death. 
Behold the paradox once again. He's strong, he's mighty, he can slay a thousand people, he can tear a lion apart with his bare hands, but he can't even get himself a drink of water when he needs it. The illusion of self-sufficiency and autonomy is shattered. Even the Savior needs to be saved. So what does he do? He cries out to the Lord. Finally, finally, Israel, personified in her judge, does what she should have done all along, cry out to the Lord. Finally, as Samson says in verse 18, the Lord is given credit for the great salvation. Finally, as Samson acknowledges, he is the Lord's servant. That which was prophesied before his birth, that which, which he has run away from all along. In all the sin, in all the shame, in all the terror, this is Samson's finest moment. This prayer is why he is listed in Hebrews 11 as an example of what it means to live by faith. He looks to God alone in time of need. He's not a man who lives by faith because he was sinless and he had great moral character, but because he relied upon God when he was at his lowest. That's all it takes in that sense. Samson is a sinner, but we see right here that he is also a saint because this expression is an expression of faith in Yahweh. This is an expression of what it means to live by faith. And so the Lord hears his prayer. He splits the rock open. He brings forth water, which is one of the great marks in the Old Testament of God's salvation when he provides water. This water flowing from the rock was, of course, reminiscent of how God did the same for Israel in the Exodus. This shows us that we are to see in Samson the personification of all of Israel. He's walking in Israel's steps once again. The nation can be reduced down to her leader, which is true in the Old Testament, and it's true in the New Testament as well, as Christ is the head of the church. Here, then, is a God who delivers His people, not just in their great salvations, but in their little lesser moment-by-moment needs as well. If He provides so gloriously in salvation, will He not provide our daily needs of food and water and clothing? This then seals the deal of Samson in verse 20. It says that he judged Israel 20 years. This is the event that marks him out as a judge. This is probably the beginning of his reign. <clears throat> this is the act of faith in this man of God who is also a great sinner. Do you see then how sometimes it takes suffering to wake us up to our true need? You see how God often uses suffering to wake us up to what we truly need. Undoubtedly, going without thirst to the point of death was extremely painful and difficult. And yet it turns out for Samson's spiritual good. 
Anybody who's ever grown, whether it be physically, whether it be mentally, vocationally, or spiritually, anybody who's ever grown knows that growth is not found in comfort. No pain, no gain, as it's often said. This is the paradox of God's sanctifying work. This is the fact that God teaches us the fact that God will do anything to wake us up for our greater need, for our true need, even driving us to the point of utter utter death and despair with thirst in order to save our souls, in order to do good for us and for His great name. This is the paradox of God's sanctifying work, and it's also the beauty and wisdom of it as well. Because we know as a people of God that everything bad that happens to us, even that is used by God for our good. God will do whatever it takes to wake us up, but He does this because He loves you. Because He loves you and will not let you go. Don't you want a Savior who will not let you go? We too then are to call upon Him in time of need. And He will answer. Well, in all this, we've obviously seen the sinner side of Samson predominantly. We've seen... True Adam in Samson, true Israel, and true us. But we must not miss how Samson doesn't just depict humanity and our sinner-saint struggle. But it also, Samson also depicts and foreshadows our sinless Savior. And that that's part of the paradox as well. He is a great sinner who points us to a perfect Savior. In case you missed it as we walk through this story, consider Jesus Christ. God also sent a single-handed, Spirit-empowered hero to save His people. Consider how when Christ came, His own received Him not. They didn't recognize Him as their Savior. They loved their bondage. And they shouted, we have no king but Caesar. They saw Him as their enemy. They saw Him and said, oh, with this man, the Romans are going to come take away our temple and our place of worship. So we've got to get rid of Him. And what do they do? They bind Jesus and they hand Him over to the Gentiles. To which Jesus also goes willingly and without resistance. Christ then fights the battle all alone. His disciples flee from Him. He cries out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, He's thirsty to the point of death and He cries out for a drink. Excuse me, a drink. The cross then, this instrument of shame, this instrument of death, this instrument of torture becomes the unconventional weapon that he uses for victory. And then there's another hill, not a hill of the jawbone, the the place of the skull, where he lays up heaps upon heaps of slain sins for his people. 
after the battle, everything is taken out of him in death, but the Spirit returns and God revives him from the grave. Reclaiming death, Jesus uses death to win the victory. And then he preaches his victory after the battle. He triumphs over the principalities and powers. He puts them to open shame. He even continues to use foolish means to accomplish his purposes as he sends out weak, infallible, broken men and women to teach and to proclaim and to preach the gospel to the nations. The quote Pastor Luke Walker. It says, it's as if Jesus, Jesus now says, With the cross, I have crossed out the sin in God's crosshairs. With death, I have put death to death. And upon that victory, we read that a fountain has been opened up for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from their sin and uncleanness. Christ was also that rock that was split and blood and water flowed from His side which brings life to His people. Just like with Samson, that spring of living water is still here, remains even to this day. For all who call upon the Lord shall be saved. Finally, as well, now Jesus has been recognized as Savior and Judge. And at the end of time, every knee will bow and confess that as well. Don't you see the story of Samson mirrors Jesus. It foreshadows Christ. It points us to that story. We go off the rails when we just look at his character, at his sin, at his flaws. More than anything else, we need the gospel. We need to see here Samson laying forth before us the story of our Savior. And we need that today. We need that tomorrow. We need that message for all eternity. So brethren, how shall you respond to this? This is a passage that calls for your response. It doesn't call for your response if it's just a, a, a story that we tell children, bedtime story. It doesn't call for your response that just helps you become a better person. But if this story points to Christ, it calls for your response. Samson is proof right here that you have no excuse not to call upon the name of the Lord. No matter what you've done, no matter what besetting sins you struggle with, no matter how hopeless or trivial your need might be, even if it's a cup of water, no matter what kind of sinner you are, God hears prayers. God will answer when you call upon Him. And the righteous are to live by faith. Brethren, this is Jesus Christ, your Savior, put before you in the story of Samson. And this is the salvation that He has won for you that we receive by, through faith, by grace through faith. And this is a story that calls for you to look to your Savior today and find your greatest hope, your greatest comfort, your greatest salvation, your greatest purpose in Him and in Him alone.
May God give us the grace to respond in faith to our Savior today. Amen? Let's pray.